0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 32, Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus chapter 22 contains a series of rules about priests and their families eating the food that's been sacrificed to Jehovah. Now remember that the priests... Chief food supply were those things brought by the people of Israel for sacrifice in the tabernacle and, of course, later on the temple. Now, what's also noteworthy is that a direct parallel is drawn in this chapter between the requirement of the perfection of priests who offer the sacrifices to the sacrificial animals themselves even the description of the nature of the banned blemishes upon priests and upon the sacrificial animals is very similar. Now look at this list of defects that ends chapter 21. Neither priest nor animal could come before the Lord, meaning they couldn't take their roles in the sacrificial process, if any of these following defects were noted blindness, a broken or injured arm or leg, scurvy, running sores, a limb that was too long or too short, crushing crushed rather, or missing testicles or a, a growth in the eye, cataracts, things like that, a clouded eye. Now God's definition of perfection, which is synonymous with that phrase without blemish, is what's being defined in this this list of disqualifying defects, and it's clear of course that no priest, no sacrificial animal was everly utterly perfect. It's instructive for our understanding of this requirement for perfection that modern day rabbis who are actively searching for the perfect red heifer have yet to find one. Okay. This is because it's the rabbis who have come to define what perfect means. Right. And of course that standard, at least for the red heifer thus far, has fallen short. And my point is that we must approach the supposed physical perfection of priest and sacrificial animals with some common sense. Yehovah okay. set down Definitions of perfection that were broad enough to to allow for the natural variations and built-in imperfections that occur among all humans and animals without being so wrapped up in punctilious detail that nobody and nothing can ever hope to qualify. The blemishes that, that we saw listed were just the most obvious and, and rather easily detectable, and so affected a rather small fraction of the population of both priests and clean animals. And without detouring just yet, let me point out that this attention to detail bordering, frankly, on the absurd, it went beyond that which God had ordained. Well beyond. And for this man-made definition Of perfection, it was more opinion and personal preference and intellectualism than divine decree in its source. It it was this system of tradition gone wild that Yeshua was constantly referring to when he complained about the burden of the law upon the people. It was the rabbi's laws, not God's laws, that Yeshua spoke against, not the very same laws that Christ himself had made. It it was man's ridiculous rules and regulations that were simply unachievable, not God's fair and just laws that expressed his nature and character that were in question. That said, is it not fascinating? that eventually Messiah would fulfill not only all the requirements for the perfect priest but for the perfect sacrificial substitute as well okay. a level of perfection that was so far beyond man's ability to comprehend that it had to be God himself that took on the role of high priest and atoning sacrifice Listen look at a few New Testament verses that connect these commands that we visit in Leviticus with Yeshua's purpose on earth. Now I'm going to call them out to you. You can turn to them, but I've got them here or I can read them to you. Beginning at Hebrews 723. Hebrew seven twenty-three. It says Moreover, the present Kohanim, the present priests are many in number because they are prevented by death from continuing on in office, but because he lives forever, his position as priest doesn't pass on to someone else, and consequently he is totally able to deliver those who approach God through him, since he is alive forever and thus forever able to intercede on there on our behalf. This is the kind of high priest that meets our need. Holy, without evil, without stain, set apart from sinners, raised higher than the heavens. One who does not have the the daily necessity, like the other high priests, of offering up sacrifices first for their own sins, and only after that for those of the people Because he offered one sacrifice once and for all by by offering up himself. For the Torah appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the text which speaks about the swearing of the oath, a text written later than the Torah, appoints a son who has been brought to that goal forever. Now, here is a detailed explanation comparing the Levite priests, more specifically in these verses, the high priest to Jesus and his ministry. Yeshua became the permanent high priest upon his death and resurrection. Not like a high priest, but as a real high priest. And this because a high priest, a mediator, is still needed to make intercession on our behalf. Hebrews nine eleven. But when the Messiah appeared as high priest of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, it's not created of this world, he entered into the holiest place once and for all. And he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus setting people free forever. For if sprinkling ceremonially, ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a red heifer restores their outward purity, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death, so that we can serve the living God. It's because of this death that he is mediator of a new covenant. Because a death has occurred which sets people free from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I mean, this is powerful, powerful stuff. Just as Yeshua is the high priest, he's also now compared to the sacrificial animals, goats, bulls, heifers, that he replaces with himself. Now notice it also defines exactly which sins or transgressions that his blood atones for, as it says, the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Referring, of course, To the law or the Torah. The new covenant deals with how atonement is achieved and who is included among those that are permitted to use this new level of atonement for sin. And this new and unprecedented level is Christ's blood because it is applied once and for all. With the caveat that the permitted group who may take advantage of this permanent method of atonement is only those who trust in what Christ did. All others are excluded. Okay, so let's be very clear about what's happening here, so vividly stated and yet re- routinely misused. We commit sins. Messiah's blood makes our atonement. What' sin? It's the transgressions against the laws of the First Covenant. What is the First Covenant? The law of the Torah. The law of Mount Sinai. See, the New Testament story of Jesus is all about a whole new level of atonement. Not the abolishment of an old law for the establishment of a new one. From an earthly sense, it's as though we Americans retained all the same laws on our books, and we even determined that all the punishments for people who broke those laws remain the same. But now, somebody else, a volunteer, a substitute, can pay all those fines serve all that jail time, even take our place in the death chamber that we deserve. I mean, how do I know that this is all the case? How do I know for sure that both the law and its penalties remain, that only the penalty has been transferred to Yeshua to bear for those who trust him? Let me give you a little piece of that puzzle. Listen to Romans Three, I'm going to just read three verses in it, twenty-nine through thirty-one. Romans three, twenty-nine through thirty-one. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't He also the God of the Gentiles? Oh yes, indeed. The God of, he is the God of the Gentiles, because as you will admit, God is one. Therefore, he will consider righteous The circumcised, Hebrews, on the ground of trusting. And the uncircumcised, Gentiles, to that same trusting. Does it follow that we abolish Torah by this trusting? Big question. Heaven forbid. On the contrary, we confirm it. Matthew 5. 17, don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to make them complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth has passed away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven I mean how much more plain spoken can this get if Christ abolished the laws themselves then most certainly a lot more than a small letter or a stroke was changed if Christ kept the laws but just abolished the penalty contained within the law for breaking the law then most certainly that's a whole lot more than changing a small stroke, or a yud, of the law. Okay. But he said not the tiniest piece of it would pass, and I think I'll take his word for it. Indeed, some of the law has transformed, or for lack of a better word, right, for those who trust in him. For one thing, he is our sacrifice, and he's our high priest once and for all. Even more, he has accomplished for us, his bride, the requirement that we've been reading about in these first few uh, verses of Leviticus uh, 21 and then 22. We must be perfect if we're going to be part of Yeshua's priesthood because being a priest means having access to God that others just don't have. Listen to this, Ephesians 5.25. For as husbands, rather, as for husbands, love your wives, just as the Messiah loved the messianic community. Indeed, he gave himself up on his behalf. In order to set it apart for God, making it clean through immersion in the mikvah, so to speak, in order to present the messianic community to himself as a bride to be proud of, without a spot, without a wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without defect. See, we have been declared perfect, blemish-free. Perfect, blemish-free priests. The bride of the high priest. And his spiritual living water makes us clean. You see, blemishes and defects among the priests weren't necessarily sin, but they were considered uncleanness. But these blemishes and defects could become sin if we presented something to God that had blemishes and was full of defects. That's why the priests couldn't do it. They couldn't even present themselves to God, or it would become a sin if they were unclean we can't do that either. What do we have to present? Ourselves. So we have to be perfected before we can ever be presented to him. And the way that happens is when we present before Jesus our blemished lives and works so riddled with defect and say to him, by my own efforts and character, I know I'm just not good enough to commune with you. See, Yeshua had to help us in two primary ways. First, he atoned for our sinful natures and sinful behaviors by means of his blood. And second, Christ purified us from uncleanness by his living water. Now, how amazingly this fits utterly hand in glove with everything we've been learning in the traditionally neglected book of the Torah, Leviticus, at least neglected by Christians. A book that is supposedly dead, obsolete, and irrelevant. Yet we see every aspect of its rules and commands happening on a spiritual level, a higher plane in the New Testament. I mean, I tell you truly, there is utterly no way to grasp the depth of what happens under the New Covenant without first understanding the Torah. So let's read a little more of it. Leviticus chapter 22. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 22. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell Aharon, Aaron, and his sons to separate themselves from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they set apart as holy for me, so that they will not profane my holy name. I am Adonai. Tell them, any descendant of yours, through all your generations, who approaches the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate to Adonai and is unclean, will be cut off from before me. I'm Adonai. Any descendant of Aaron with Sarat, or a discharge, is not to eat the holy things until he is clean. Anyone who's touched a person made unclean by a dead body, or has had a seminal emission, or who has touched a reptile or insect that can make him unclean, or a man who is unclean for any reason and who can transmit to him his uncleanness, the person who touches any of these will be unclean until evening and is not to eat the holy things till he bathes his body in water. After sunset, he'll be clean. Afterwards, he may eat the holy things because they're his food. But he's not to eat anything that dies naturally or is torn to death by wild animals and thereby make himself unclean. I'm Adonai. The priests must observe this charge of mine. Otherwise, if they profane it, they will bear the consequences of their sin for doing so and die in it. I'm Adonai who makes them holy. No one who is not a priest may eat anything holy, nor may a tenant or an employee of a priest eat anything holy. But if a Kohen, a priest, acquires a slave, either through purchase or through his being born in his household, he may share his food. If the daughter of a Kohen is married to a man who's not a Kohen, she is not to have a share of the food set aside from the holy things. But if the daughter of a Cohen is a widow, or divorcee, and has no child, and she's sent back to her father's house, as when she was young, she may share in her father's food, but no one not a Cohen is to share in it. If a person eats holy food by mistake, he must add one-fifth to it and give the holy food to the Cohen. They're not to profane the holy things of the people of Israel that they've set apart for Adonai, and thus cause them to bear guilt, requiring a guilt offering, by eating their holy things, because I'm Adonai who makes them holy. Adonai said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and to the entire people of Israel and tell them, when anyone, whether a member of the house of Israel or a foreigner living in Israel, brings his offering, either in connection with a vow or as a voluntary offering, and he brings it to Adonai as a burnt offering, in order for you to be accepted, you must bring a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. You're not to bring anything with a defect, because it will not be accepted from you. Whoever brings a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai in fulfillment of a vow, or a voluntary offering, whether it comes from the herd or from the flock, it must be unblemished, and without defect in order to be accepted. If it's blind, injured, mutilated, has an abnormal growth, or has festering or running sores, you're not to offer it to Adonai, or make such an offering by fire on the altar of Adonai. If a bull or a lamb has a limb which is too long or short, you may offer it as a voluntary offering, but for a vow it cannot be accepted. An animal with bruised, crushed, torn, or cut genitals, you're not to offer to Adonai. You're not to do these things in your land. You're not to receive any of these things from a foreigner for you to offer as bread for your God, because their deformity is a defect in them. They will not be accepted from you. Adonai said to Moses, When a bull, a sheep, or a goat is born, it is to stay with its mother for seven days, but from the eighth day on... It may be accepted for an offering made by fire to Adonai. However, no animal is to be slaughtered together with its young on the same day, neither cow nor you. When you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Adonai, you must do it in a way such that you will be accepted. It must be eaten on the same day it is offered. Leave none of it till morning. I'm Adonai. You are to keep my mitzvot and obey them. I'm Adonai. You're not to profane my holy name. On the contrary, I'm to be regarded as holy among the people of Israel. I'm Adonai, who makes you holy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I'm Adonai. This chapter is primarily about explaining circumstances under which priests may not officiate at sacrifices, nor eat the food that had been brought for sacrifices. And the first thing that's commanded is that a priest is disqualified from eating the sacred donations, these these offerings, if he's in a state of impurity for some reason. It says that if a priest does eat that food, then he's to be cut off, karet, K-A-R-E-T in Hebrew, from the Lord. Now, in this case, cut off does not mean that the priest is to be killed or sent away. It simply means that he's to be removed from God's presence in the sense that he's to be removed from his priestly duties, presumably for some unspecified time, likely until he's ritually clean again. Then starting in verse 4, we get this series of examples of things that can cause a priest to become unclean, which therefore means that a priest cannot eat the food that's been brought as sacred offerings by the people. Now, most of these types of uncleanness mentioned require an eight-day cycle of ritual cleansing before the priest is once again considered pure. Remember, in the Bible, the number eight symbolizes atonement and redemption. But in a somewhat confusing statement, verse six then says that that person shall only be unclean until sunset. What gives? What happened to this eight-day cycle? Well, the answer is that two different situations are being spoken of here. The first situation is where a priest directly defiles himself by committing an act that is prohibited, such as a a priest touching a dead body or or, or him having some type of bodily discharge or maybe having an open sore. Now, all of those things would render him as unclean. The second situation is one in which the priest touches someone else who's been made unclean by doing one of these prohibited things. Remember that we've been taught that uncleanness can be transmitted by touch. So the idea is that his touching someone who is ritually unclean defi- uh, defiles that priest because that unclean person's impurity is transmitted to him. Kind of like a secondary infection. Okay. The first situation of direct defilement requires the usual eight-day cycle of purification. The second situ- situation of indirect defilement caused by his Touching something that was defiled requires only waiting until sundown, meaning the end of one day and the beginning of a new day, and then a ritual bath, and that makes the priest clean again. Now, did the priest, did this unclean priest have to now go hungry until he was clean again, since an unclean priest couldn't eat any of that holy food? No, it wasn't that he couldn't eat at all. He just couldn't eat sacred food, so he'd have to go out and purchase non-sanctified food, like all regular Israelites ate, or acquire it in some other way. And verse ten says that no outsider, no layperson, or non-priest can eat of these sacred offerings offered at the tabernacle altar. But then it goes on to define just who an outsider and an insider are. And what we find is rather instructional as it concerns Israeli society in general. So let's let's look very closely at verses 10 and 11. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. We essentially get five categories or classifications of people who might be living under the roof of a priest. And each category is then told whether or not they can share in the priest's portion of holy food. Now remember, in general, the family of a priest, including his wife and children, are fully entitled to share that priest's holy food portion. But Israeli society was not only different than ours today, it was a lot more complex in certain ways. So some explanation is needed here. Okay. These five categories that it's speaking of are defined as first a lay person who's also classified as an outsider. Second is a bound or, or tenant laborer. Third was a hired laborer. Fourth was a priest's purchased slave. Fifth It speaks of a person born into the priest's household. Now, since different Bible versions vary all over the map as to the precise words they use to translate each of these categories, your Bible may use slightly different words than what I read to you and probably even combine a couple of these categories so that you almost don't even see the distinction. You almost can't even see that there's five categories. It helps a lot to use the original Hebrew. Now, permit me to reiterate, pay close attention to these distinctions and variations because it's going to help us greatly in understanding matters all the way through the Old Testament and then on into the New. Now, these classes are not that well-defined, frankly, in the Bible. It's understood by the writer that you already knew these subtleties. Therefore, you knew the significance of each category in whatever context it was used. Remember, this was written in a Hebrew culture. Okay. If we don't take the time to understand Israeli society and family rules, we get some very strange ideas and misconceptions about what is actually happening and, and, and about the principles this is all operating under. The first category spoken of is at the beginning of verse 10. And in Hebrew, it concerns a person called a sar, Z-A-R. Tsar is a common Hebrew word. It usually just means stranger or foreigner. But as it's used here, it means strange as in the sense of not belonging. It's out of place. It's somebody or some, something that's out of place. Using the term layperson is probably the best translation for a church-going westerner. The idea is simply that no non-priest, that is, a person who is strange or foreign to the priesthood, is permitted to eat of the sacred sacrifices and donations. It can also include Levites, who were one-time priests but had been removed from the priesthood maybe because of some serious infraction, or maybe because they'd lost a limb or something. Okay. The one caveat to all this is that those who are considered family of the priest can eat the holy food that the priest brings home. The remaining four categories and terms we're going to define basically states whether that category is to be considered part of the priest's family or not. So the second category spoken of, just a few words into verse 10, is in Hebrew, Toshav. Toshav is a broad term. It can mean something like guest worker. Okay. Maybe it's a foreign friend of this priestly family who came to stay for a while. It can even refer to a person who's being forced to live with that priest's family as a result that that person is paying off a debt. Therefore, that Toshav may in some cases be a Hebrew. Generally, Toshav indicates that there is no blood or in-law relationship. Therefore, they're classified as friends or acquaintances, not of the priestly line. A Toshav is not a family member. And by Hebrew thinking, not property of a priest like a slave is. So, they can't eat of that holy food. The third category immediately follows the second in our Bibles, and in some cases the two are lumped together. Okay. This third category is sahir, S A K I R, sahir. It means a hired laborer, just like we think of it. Okay. Maybe it's a day laborer, maybe it's a live-in maid. Okay. But the idea is that this is a person who's not a slave. They're not a bond servant paying off a debt. They simply have a job. The priests hired them, and they're paying them. Okay. Most hired maids and servants did live in in those days. It was just part of the pay package. Okay. The fourth category is presented at the beginning of verse 11, where most Bible versions will say priest's property, or it'll say slave. The Hebrew uses a whole series of word, words rather than a single word like we've used up to now to define this category. And the words are kanan nefesh. Literally, it means an acquired living being. Okay. A couple of words later, it is added that this kanan nefesh, this acquired living being, was acquired by means of purchase with the priest's own money. So, literally, it says, an acquired living being purchased by money. That's what it says. Okay. A slave. It was usually a foreign slave purchased from a slave trader because, by law, a Hebrew couldn't own another Hebrew. Now, what's key to notice is that this category of person is actually considered family. A slave. Against against all modern logic, you wouldn't think that. Right? And therefore, because this slave, even a foreigner, a purchased person, right, is permitted to eat that holy food of the priest, okay. equally as interesting, a bond servant, one who's paying off a debt that's being forced to live with the priest, they can't eat the food because they're the priest's property. A purchased slave is considered family. A bond servant is not. Remember that as we go through the Bible and as you're reading the New Testament and learn that distinction. The final category is usually described as those Born into the family or household of the priest. Don't get the picture of the priest's own children here. That's not what's being referred to. The Hebrew word is Yalid Beito, and it literally means born into the household, but it's not used in conjunction With the head of the household's wife giving birth to his children. It's a term reserved for the children born from purchased slaves. Who are not blood relatives of the priest. The children born from purchased slaves belong to the slave owner just as the slave does. Okay. Now, since several of these categories, in one way or another, involve servitude or slavery, I need to make clear that those slaves who, who were not purchased, and therefore not family, and not allowed to partake of the holy food given to the priest, certainly weren't starved. This simply meant that the food provided to them had to be purchased by the priest. Okay. Further don't get the idea that a purchased slave was somehow necessarily better off or better treated than a bond servant. Under the law, all slaves, no matter how they were acquired, no matter whether they were foreigners or Hebrews, all of them had to be treated decently, they could not be abused, they couldn't be starved, they couldn't be overworked. Okay. Now let me say this another way. Every one of these categories is discussed and defined here in Leviticus 22 because the situation was that for one reason or another every one of these categories of people regularly wound up living in the home of a priest. Then the purpose of these categories only pertained to whether they could eat the sacred food. And as we see some We're allowed some work, and it sure doesn't necessarily follow in the way our logic might think it ought to happen. Now, verse 12 defines what happens if a priest's daughter marries outside of her priestly line. She just marries a regular Hebrew. Well, she stops receiving any of the sacred food. Now that she's with a new husband. She's now joined to that husband. So her new identity is with her husband and it ceases to be with her natural father and mother. Yet if something happens because of death or divorce and she has no other choice but to go back and live once again in her father's house, then she can once again eat that sacred food as a family member. Now notice the comment, about this exception to the rule being, if she's without offspring, that's the key. Okay. The idea is is that if she has a son who's old enough to care for his widowed or divorced mother, then it's his duty by the law to care for her. And since he would, by definition, not have been a priest, then his mother would have lost any eligibility to eat that holy food. Now, as you can probably imagine, with these complex laws, mistakes were made. The verses 13 through 15 of Leviticus chapter 22 deals primarily with what happens if somebody unqualified to eat this sacred food accidentally does. Okay? And understand that these rules apply only when it's an honest mistake. It's an unintentional error. It's not a trick or a deception, or it's not just an outright disregard for the law. Okay. Therefore, the penalty is pretty minor. Um, the violator has to pay the value of the sacrifice back. They have to give it back, plus an additional 20%. Okay. Now, accidents and, and, and lapses, we're going to find all throughout the law, are really given a lot of mercy. But even then, there's a consequence, even though it's small. Never can one affront Yehoveh's holiness, even without malice, and be given a complete pass. And we must never forget that in our walk. Now, I think verse 16 gives us a little hint of something that went on quite a bit among Israel. Something that happened with regularity in most pagan cultures. At this moment in history, God was in the process of leading the Israelites out of their paganism, okay, with the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah. And basically it says that the priests have this dual responsibility there to make sure that they themselves don't profane God's holy property, and secondly, there to make sure that no ordinary Israelite Sins by eating the holy food to which they're not entitled. Easy enough to understand, but then it goes on to say, for it is I, Yehovah who makes them sacred. This is not a throwing phrase. I think what's being addressed here is this standard pagan belief of that era, to a degree it even transfers to today, that you can make yourself holy by your behavior, by doing godlike things. And one of the standard things, particularly back then, that you could do was eat the food of the gods. Ingest holy food, and presto, you're holy. Okay. Now, we've talked previously about how we will see all these mentions in the Bible of the offerings being food for God and of the smoke of this burnt offering being a sweet aroma for his nostrils. And I've taught you that the Israelites were serious about those words. Right? And their cultural thinking, which at that time was based pretty much on pagan concepts and practices born out of four centuries in Egypt, even though Jehovah didn't tell them so, it was common sense to them, that God needed to eat. And that he had a nose that liked good-smelling things, because that's just how gods are. Okay. And the common element among all the pagan societies of that era was that animals were burned up on altars, and that these animals were actually real food for the gods. They had to eat. Since it was holy food, if one was to eat of that food, it would then transmit holiness to the one who ate of it. So holiness could actually be misappropriated. At least that was the thinking. So God was telling Israel something that he was going to have to tell them decade after decade after decade. And still so much of the Hebrew society didn't get it. He makes holy. You can't sacrifice your way to holiness. You can't obey the laws well enough to attain holiness. And in the current case, you can't eat your way to holiness. You can only be declared holy by the only one who has the authority to do it, the Lord. Following the laws did bring a kind of holiness, a kind of righteousness to the worshiper, but not the saving kind, not not a spiritual kind. The kind it brought was the kind that comes from being obedient, the kind that comes from setting your mind and heart on believing that what God says is true and that real life comes from living a Torah life. But the way all this happened was that it had to come in a precise Unchangeable order. First, you have to be redeemed. Next, you must be declared holy by God. Then, you, I, out of gratitude and awareness of the truth, can now follow him in obedience. That's the procedure. It doesn't work the other direction. You have to be made holy and righteous. Now, go and live a holy and righteous life. No other order will do it, and it remains so to this day. Now, we're going to move pretty rapidly through these next several verses. I'd like you to take notice, though, that we're in verse 18. It talks about anyone offering a burnt offering, whether of a vow or a votive offering. Our study of the Hebrew words for these various offerings comes in handy. Because starting in verse 21, when it begins to speak of an offering for another sacrifice, we're not just getting a repeat of what God had just finished saying the verse or two before. Each of these different kinds of sacrifices, each with their own purpose and own protocol and own requirements of exactly what the sacrificial offering was to consist of, is being addressed. The first grouping of offerings, which are in verses 18 through 20, are based on what's called the olah, sacrifices. The second grouping, verses 21-22, are based on the shlamim sacrifices. And of course, God makes clear that no defect can appear on the animals. Clearly, both the sacrifice and the sacrificer must be without blemish. Further, the sacrifice has to come from a prescribed group of animals. And the sacrificer must come from a prescribed group of people the Levites now we saw earlier as we looked at some New Testament verses how Yeshua precisely paralleled this pattern right down to the last detail he had to be the blemish free sacrifice which came from a certain group the tribe of Judah And he had to be the priest, the perfect priest of a certain type. But here's the thing. Of what type of priest did he have to be? Of what group did he have to come? Well, the Bible uses a different word for that. It calls it an order. What order did he have to come from? And it says he had to come from a very interesting order. The order of Melchizedek. not the order of Levites. He had to come from the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'd also like this opportunity to point out another principle that is laid out so very well, but it's easily overlooked. It says in verses 24 and 25 that not only must Israel not use for sacrifice any defective animal from their own herds, They must also not use foreign animals that have defects. Notice that there is no prohibition against using foreign raised animals for sacrificing. It's only that they have to meet the same exact standard of being defect-free as for the animals raised by Hebrews. Here's the thing. The principle is that the requirements for presenting to God that which is acceptable to God, are universal. It doesn't matter if the source is Hebrew or Gentile. Perspection is the requirement. Israel doesn't get a break on this requirement. And guess what, Gentiles? Neither do we. This is a doctrine that Paul taught so diligently in various books of the New Testament before god from a spiritual point of view all humanity is the same and when it comes to the requirements for being in his presence we're all the same and when it comes to what is good and clean evil and uh, or rather, or rather good and evil clean and unclean right and wrong fair and unjust just and unjust holy and impure, perfect and imperfect. See, we're all the same. There's not two sets of rules. So don't be deceived. If the requirement to be acceptable to God is the same for everybody, and in our era that requirement is trust in Messiah Yeshua, do you really believe that the rules and ordinances that define good and evil clean and unclean, just and unjust, and so forth, are different for different groups. Okay. That Jehovah has plan A for the Jews, plan B for the Gentiles, as concerns righteousness and holiness before him. Okay. Torah defines righteousness and holiness for all. And it defines life and goodness for all. God doesn't have a Torah for the Hebrews and another Torah for the Gentiles. Okay, but it sure seems that the institutional church is telling us that's the case. Okay, the New Testament's for Gentiles, the Old Testament's for the Jews. Yet God doesn't say, well, Hebrews, you have to be very strict on following the principles of, but, of my Torah, but Gentiles... You can just kind of make it up as you go. Jews have no latitude. Gentiles have no boundaries. What a great idea. I love it. In essence, is that not the implication behind the standard Christian teaching that Torah is irrelevant for Gentiles, but it's alive and well for the Jews? Let that marinate for a while in your minds. Okay, chapter 22 winds down by giving us a couple of ordinances regarding just how young a sacrificial animal can be before it's offered. And it says that it has to be at least eight days old, right, before it can become suitable for presenting to God. Of course, it's interesting that the requirement. For Hebrew boys to be circumcised, which is a precisely symbolic of them being presented to God, is the same. Right? They undergo great law on the eighth day. Next, we see that no animal may be killed on the same day its mother is killed and vice versa. And generally, this is regarded as an instruction to be humane, to be merciful. And finally, Jehovah reminds us all of just who he is. He is holy. He's the one who redeems. Nobody else is even capable. Okay? And he redeemed us for a purpose. He wants to be our God. Okay, I'd like to wrap things up by saying that the principles we continue to learn throughout Leviticus and Torah are either referred to or repeated throughout the New Testament. Okay. More than half of the words, some estimate as much as 70%, of the words of the New Testament are simply quotes taken directly out of the Old Testament. Okay, And it was the patterns and principles that we're studying in Torah that Jesus elevated To all of their spiritual intent. Jesus did not break the mold. He perfected it. All these requirements of Leviticus. uh, Leviticus, That only priests could approach God. Which seems kind of unfair to us. Hebrews didn't much like it either. And the priests couldn't bury their dead even. In some cases. is even brought forward to the New Testament. And examples are used. Let me just give you a finish up tonight by giving you a few. Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 2 5. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be priests set apart for God to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him through Yeshua the Messiah. 1 Peter 2 9. But you're a chosen people. You're the king's priests. A holy nation, a people for God to possess. Why? In order for you to declare the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As a believer, you are a priest. The only way one can be a priest is as a believer. There are no believers who aren't priests, there are no priests who aren't believers. You're stuck. Now pay attention to Luke, Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he can't be my disciple. Nothing but nothing can be above God. If it's necessary that you must be separated from everything you are closest to on earth in order to follow him, then so be it. And let me remind you, that wasn't Luke talking, that was Jesus. Matthew 8.21 Another of the disciples said to him, Sir, please, first let me go and bury my father. But Yeshua replied, Follow me, let the dead bury their dead. Priests ordained by Jesus are to emulate the priests of Israel. Just as the temple priests couldn't deal with dead things, neither should believers. Of course, as with all of Yeshua's teachings, he's raising the Torah rules to their full spiritual purpose and meaning. The examples of Torah are physical demonstrations of spiritual principles. This is not, this last verse I read you, is not saying that believers aren't allowed to participate in funerals. Rather, it's drawing attention, or rather it's drawing this distinction between those who are willing to forsake all to immediately follow Yeshua and so gain new life versus those who are going to stubbornly cling to the ways of tradition and gain only death. Okay, We'll start chapter 23 next time.